God, I thank you for your faithfulness that we just sang about. I thank you that you are a God who has shown from the very beginning, from uh, creation onward, that you are committed to the good of your people. And we thank you for all the different ways that you've shown, shown that. And I thank you for the testimony of, of Scripture to how uh, good you are and, and how uh, faithful you have been to your people, how much you love us. I pray that as we read your word this morning, that that would be what we come away with, with a, a renewed sense of the glory of your grace toward us in your son Jesus. We ask that you'd send your spirit so that we could understand your word truly and that you'd use your spirit to transform our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, one of the things that's always fascinated me is to think about how people view themselves, uh, what shapes their identity, their understanding of, of who they are. I came across a study a couple years ago that showed how formative the words of other people are uh, for our self-understanding and how that plays into then how we uh, act and, and how we live. And this study that I, that I read was specifically looking at the difference it makes when students were praised for their uh, ability versus effort. So they had students take this moderately difficult test, something that they could do well on, but they had to work hard on. And uh, afterward, after they scored the test, they sat down in individually with one group of students and said, you did a great job on this. You must be really smart. And they took uh, another portion of that group and sat down individually with them and said, you did really well on this test. You must have worked hard. And then afterward, they came in and gave them another test. But the second test they gave them was a much more difficult test. It was over material that they'd never covered before. They couldn't do well on it. And after scoring that one, they sat down again with the students, and the students that were praised for their ability, you're really smart, internalized their inability to do well on this test as a failure. When they were asked if they wanted to take the harder questions home to be able to practice, most of them said, yeah, I don't want to do that. And when taking another moderately difficult test afterward, they actually did worse the second time than they did on the original one. When given the choice between being able to see the results of their peers and being able to learn how to take the test better, most of them wanted to see how their peers did. On the other hand, the students who were praised for working hard did not internalize this as failure, but as a learning opportunity. So when they were offered to take home the questions to learn how to do them better, most of them jumped at that opportunity. They were much more likely to take home practice questions and they actually did better on the second moderate test than they did on the first one. And by and large, they didn't care so much what their peers wanted so much, or how the peers did so much as figuring out how to do better on the next one. See, the power of these words is immense because it shapes identity. It shapes the story of what you believe about yourself. So those who internalize the story that, that I'm really smart worked hard to try to protect the image of their intelligence, while those who internalize the story that they were hard workers um, that allowed them to develop a growth mentality that set them up better for future learning. See, what we believe about ourselves has a huge impact on what we do and on who we become. And this, of course, has strong implications for education, for parenting, but it also has implications for all of us in terms of what shapes our identity. Now, maybe you don't think too much about that kind of thing, but the truth is our identity impacts how we live every day. It's also something that's very important for us as followers of Jesus. There's great power in understanding the true story of who we are, and that's what we're going to look at today. Today we're starting a new series in the book of Ephesians that we're going to look at all through the fall this year. And Ephesians is this great book because it really centers in on the gospel and on who we are in Jesus and, and what it means to live 
in him and living out that identity. It really hammers home the identity that we're offered in Jesus and what that means for us. So today we're going to start with the the foundational story that shapes our identity in Jesus. It's a story that's powerful and it's a story that's beautiful. So let's grab a a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. You can grab a a Bible from the Purack if you want. Ephesians 1 is found on page 1814. So we're looking at Ephesians 1 verses 1 through uh, 14, page 1814. As we look at the opening part of this letter, uh, we're going to see Paul, who's writing this letter, lay out three really amazing truths for us. First, that, that we are chosen by God, then that we are redeemed by Jesus, and then that we are sealed by God's Spirit. Let's start off with the first of these. We are chosen by God. Here's how this book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is teaching us what we're dealing with here. This is an ancient letter written by an early church leader named Paul to a gathering of followers of Jesus, here called God's holy people, uh, in the city of Ephesus. And and these two verses form uh, more or less a standard uh, letter opening for the time period. Here's who it's from, here's who it's to, and then kind of a Christianized version of uh, an opening blessing, grace and peace from God. Here's how it goes from there. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, fair warning, and you probably picked up on it, this is a very densely packed section. There's clause after clause that talks about the richness of what God has done for us. And actually, in the original uh, way that Paul wrote it, this was one really long run-on sentence describing phrase after phrase of what God has done for us. It's been broken up in English to help us understand it a little bit better. But the whole section is directed toward God with reference to Him. And specifically, it's pointed toward the will of God. God's will comes up again and again in this passage. It actually starts back in verse 1. Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We see God's will again in verse 5. In verse 9 and verse 11. So this is a central theme within this text. And, and if we add language of God's plan or his good purpose, we see this doubling up then in verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. So this is an important reminder for us that, that God is in control. It's easy for us to, to think that world history is just kind of a haphazard, directionless mess. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But God is in control. This is working according to the good plan of God. It's his will. I want to focus here on on what the opening verses tell us that God has done for us. So look here again for just a second. Verse 3, Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, he says that God chose us before the foundation of the world, before creation. Verse 5, that God predestined us to be adopted by him. Verse 6, that he has given us his grace. All of these talk about what God has done for us. And what God has done for us is, is truly incredible. As I've studied this over the past week, I've really struggled to grasp the enormity of what he's talking about and then to think through how, how can we possibly communicate the enormity of, of what 
Paul is talking about here. Again, it's just densely packed full of these amazing truths that are really hard for us to truly grasp and, and really get how important these things are. So think about just one in verse 4. It says, God chose us. Think back for a minute to, to elementary school. I don't know if they, they do this anymore. Maybe they haven't done it here. But, but we used to pick teams at recess and, and in gym class, and you'd have two captains, and the captains would take turns picking who they wanted on their team. They probably don't do that anymore because it wouldn't work well for self-esteem issues and stuff like that. But, but they have these captains, and, and they pick who is going to be on their team. And, and for some of us, we really cared where we fit. Because the order that we got picked in determined the hierarchy of the sports world and the recess world. And some of us cared deeply about that. We, we wanted to be in the first one picked or the first three people picked. And, and then there were these people that were always seemed to be picked last. Now, of course, looking back on that as an adult, it, it really doesn't matter. N nothing very important is happening there on, on the recess ground. But think about the impact that that could have on a child if they always got picked last. What is communicated to that child if that happens time after time after time? It says, well, you're not really wanted. You're not very good. You're the last one. And if someone internalizes this over time, it becomes part of their identity. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not very good at that. I'm not really wanted when it comes to this activity. Into that kind of world where some of us grab onto those kind of identifying features, Paul is saying that we were chosen in Jesus before God even created the world. It's not that you're a bunch of scrubs that were picked last. It's that God, before he created anything, chose you. He knew you before the foundation of the world, and he chose you in Jesus. That's a really big deal. It shifts how we think about ourselves. Or take another one of the big phrases here in verse 5, that God predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Now, women, don't worry about the gender-specific language there. It's about having full status as a child of God. In the ancient Roman world, this was limited to male heirs. So when Paul is using this, he's saying that men and women who put their trust in Jesus have been adopted as full heirs of God, sons and daughters of God himself. And this language of adoption is such a powerful picture of changing the story. I read a story recently about the, the huge issue of child abandonment in China. Every single year, there are tens of thousands of babies that are simply abandoned in China. Most of them are girls or children with some kind of disability. This has become such a huge problem that the Chinese government has started opening up these, these baby hatches where you can drop off your baby if you're going to abandon it in a safe location because it was such a problem for babies just being left on the streets and other places uh, to be exposed. So they wanted a safe place for them to be. And just in one of these locations, in the first 11 days, 106 children were received in one of these. Now think about what that does to your self-understanding as a child. I am not wanted. There was one nine-year-old boy in an orphanage named Jaja. He was abandoned when he was three months old. He was paralyzed from the waist down, and his parents apparently decided that they could not take care of him. So what their actions communicated to him was, we don't want you. I mean, think about that. The only thing that this boy knows about his parents is that they have abandoned him. We don't want you. We're not going to take care of you. That's his story. That's the story of who he is. And, and for nine years, he, he sat in this orphanage longing to be adopted by a family, watching other children get chosen for different homes, and not him, and not him, and not him. Again and again, you are not wanted. You have no home. You have no family. Finally, after almost a decade in the orphanage, he was finally chosen. This, this Christian uh, couple in Kansas City, 
picked him. And then the story just transformed for him. Not, he's not an unwanted person who has no family, no home. He's now someone that, that this family has raised a whole bunch of money to be able to adopt, has crossed over the ocean to come and, and make their own son. His story has totally transformed by being adopted into this family. He now belongs. He has a mom and a dad. They, he is their son. That's the story of what has happened to those of us who are followers of Jesus. God chose us. He adopted us. That means that we are now his children. I mean, it's easy to pass over these things without really grasping the, the gravity of what's being said here, but this is a really big deal. God chose you. I think sometimes we hear the, the truths about God and, and words like, God loves the world, and we just keep it at kind of a universal level. But it's more personal than that. Yes, God loves the world, but God shows you as an individual. He knows you. He loves you. Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. He has adopted you as his son, as his daughter. And this answers one of the deepest questions that, that rolls through our hearts. Will anyone ever really love me? And the answer is profoundly, deeply, yes. Before the foundation of the world, God shows you. He loves you so much that he has adopted you as his own son, as his own daughter. Yes, you are loved more deeply than you imagined possible. God shows you. And there's more. We hear a second amazing truth. We are redeemed by Jesus. Verse 7. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Again, you see the densely packed phrase after phrase after phrase of what God has done for us. But the fact that we are redeemed in Jesus is how God's choice for us is, uh, impacts our lives. We are chosen by God. We are redeemed in Jesus. Uh, redemption has several different concepts wrapped up in it. It's about being set free it's about being rescued. It's about having our story changed. So in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it tells the story of, of God's people Israel and how they were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were stuck there, oppressed, and there was nothing they could do about it. They couldn't get out themselves. And God cared about them, so he raised up this man named Moses. And he sent Moses to go and, and, and speak to the leader of the people of Egypt and show these incredibly powerful things. And, and God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He set them free. The Bible uses redemption, redeem, as the story of what happened there. It's a rescue. It's being set free. It's having the story transformed. The same kind of thing is what happens to everyone who's put their, their trust in Jesus. We have redemption, Paul says, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' blood. This is one of these central truths of the gospel that we really have to come to understand. See, the truth, the starting point for every one of us is that we are born sinners. And maybe you don't believe that. Maybe you kind of uh, brush against that a little bit. But this is what the Bible says. Every one of us is born a sinner. See, we were, connect, we were created to be in relationship with God, to praise Him with every ounce of our being. And yet our natural instinct is to try to find our own way. And what we end up doing is rebelling against God 
breaking that relationship apart. And there are times in our lives when we try really hard to do the right thing. We try really hard to to fix that relationship, to put it back together. But we find that again and again and again we fail. We simply cannot do it. The Bible says we are slaves to sin. We're stuck. We can't save ourselves. But into that bad news breaks good news. Jesus died for you and me. His death redeems us. It it sets us free from the guilt and shame and restores that relationship to God. This is really good news. And, And Paul uses strong adjectives to describe what has happened there. He talks about the riches of God's grace. He talks about God lavishing his grace on us. He talks about God doing this with all wisdom, with all understanding. This is what has happened. Jesus redeems us. Now, now some of us have grown up in church, and and we've heard this a million times, and it's easy to not really think about it, and it's not easy to think about how this actually impacts our day-to-day lives. But once we actually grasp this, it will transform how we live because it will allow us to live as redeemed forgiven people. So my wife and I, when when we see our kids do something wrong, we'll, we'll always be telling them, we will always forgive you no matter what you do. Please tell us the truth. Please come to us. So we'll, we'll come into a room and there'll be something broken on the floor. And sometimes it's an expensive thing that's been broken on the floor. And my wife and I did not see it. And so we call the kids over. And say, Does anyone know what happened here? And miraculously, with four kids in the house, none of them know how this nice expensive thing got broken. My wife and I are telling us, no, we will forgive you for anything you do. Because we want them to tell us the truth and because we want them to come to us. See, this is what it means to live as redeemed people. Our natural tendency when we do something wrong is to run away because we've got feelings of guilt. We've got feelings of shame. I've done something wrong here. So we run away from our parents as we're kids. We run away from God as we're adults. And sometimes we kind of come groveling back. And this is where the whole idea of penance comes from. We do something wrong, and we feel like we have to do something to make it up. We have to somehow show God that, that we're really, truly sorry about this. So, so, so we'll pay for it somehow. We'll do something to, to show that, that we know this wasn't right. And we end up kind of wallowing in it, wallowing in our guilt, wallowing in our shame. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says that, that Jesus has already paid for that. We are forgiven in him. We are redeemed in him. That means that when we mess up, when we do something wrong, we don't run away from God. We don't hide from him. We run to him knowing that we are redeemed people. And that means that every time you do something wrong, it's actually an opportunity to worship God in that moment rather than running away and trying to make it right first. That will never work. We run to God because we are redeemed in Jesus. It totally transforms how we experience guilt and shame and fear. We experience it as redeemed people, knowing that we will be forgiven every single time. But this is good news for us, not just on a personal level, but also on a global scale as well. I don't know if you caught that, but but Paul is pointing out the, the bigger picture of what God is doing here as well. Look at the second half of verse 10. As he's talking about the the great plan of God and how this involves redemption, this is where the whole thing is headed. For God to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So the redemption that we have in Jesus is part of the bigger plan of God to make everything right in him. God is going to bring everything together under King Jesus. That is how things will be made right. It's a global cosmic scale of what God is doing in Jesus. Now, this is important for us to grasp 
I've watched a lot of people get really thrown off over the last year. See, some of us have this notion that, that things are always kind of progressing. Things are always kind of getting a little bit better, and we believe in the power of education, we believe in other systems and all these things, and somehow we're going to make a better world through all these things. Now, some of us have a very different worldview from that, but, but by and large, we believe in ourselves. We believe in our ability to, to solve problems. We believe in our ability to somehow negotiate peace. We believe in our ability to become the, the best versions of ourselves and, and to make the best version possible of the world. And some of this is commendable. I, I'm, I'm really glad for the effort that this has engendered in some people, working hard to create a better place here on this earth. But I've noticed over the past years that, that some of that optimism has waned a little bit, and, and in its place are question marks. It's actually similar to what happened in the first half of the 20th century. I don't know if you know this, but when the 1900s dawned, there was this great optimism that the 20th century would be the time when the world became utopian, perfect. And the Christian church had this same kind of optimism, so much so that there was a magazine that started about this time called The Christian Century. And that was the mindset. Things were getting better and better, progressing, and, and this is going to be the century when it all comes together and everything becomes perfect. Well, what happened? World War I. 37 million soldiers killed, wounded, or missing. And that wasn't the end of it. World War II, over 75 million people killed. What happened? We came face to face with our capacity for evil. And suddenly, we weren't so sure that we could build the utopian world that we'd been so optimistic about. What Paul is talking about here is an important word for those who picture, whose picture of the world has been shaken. See, if, you're, if you want to believe in human progress, if you want to believe in things always getting better, then every tragedy along the way is going to call into question your hope for the future. Every one of those things is going to shake you to the core. Paul is pointing out here a better answer, a better story. So there is hope. In fact, there is unshakable hope, but that hope is grounded in the plan of God made real in Jesus. That's why he's pointing to the bigger picture of what God has done. So this redemption that we have in Jesus is incredible on a personal level. It's good for us. We live as redeemed, forgiven people. But this is part of the big picture of what God is doing to make all things right in this world. He's bringing everything together under King Jesus. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's tying the good news of us personally to the good news of what God's doing on a global scale. Jesus redeems us. Then we come to one last amazing truth here. We are sealed by God's Spirit. Look at the last two verses of our text, verses 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. And for those of us who become followers of Jesus, this is our story. This is what has happened to us. Somewhere along the line, we heard the message of Jesus, the gospel. And somewhere along the line, we came to believe that that message is true. And so we put our trust in Jesus. Paul's saying what happens in that moment is that God seals us with his Holy Spirit. A seal is about authenticity. It's a stamp of uh, authenticity. If you wrote a level letter, you would seal it and put your mark on it and say, no, this is really from me. This is truly mine. That's what God does to his people. He seals us with his Spirit, meaning that we are shown to be truly those who belong to God. 
And further, being sealed by the Spirit is the guarantee of all the good promises that God has for the future. If you ever wonder if God will really make these things come true, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the deposit that guarantees that that is actually going to happen. Now, if you're like me, you hear the word guarantee and you're immediately going to be skeptical. We've heard lots of different guarantees and most of those don't amount to anything. I was talking to uh, someone a couple years ago and they were talking about this uh, deck staining uh, product and it was guaranteed to last for five years of coverage. Well, within a year, the whole deck was peeled and falling apart. And he actually took a picture of, of his peeling deck and the can. He put the can right in the middle of it with the words five-year guarantee right in the front, highlighted that to show how absurd this whole thing is. We've all had those experiences, something that is guaranteed and it just doesn't happen. I was part of a, a hockey team once that, that guaranteed victory for the last home game of the season. Uh, never mind that we had not won a single game all season long and that one of our previous home games we lost 27-3. to So our fans didn't have a lot of uh, hope in that guarantee, but we wanted to get them to the game, so we guaranteed victory for that game. Incredibly, we actually won that game. Uh, but, but guarantees, they really don't mean much unless there's something substantial backing them up. Paul is saying that, that God is, gives us the Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee that that's actually going to happen. So the Spirit's like the down payment or the first payment that guarantees that God is actually going to do what He has said He's going to do. Now, as, as Paul's laying out the, the opening section here of this letter, he's going to say a bunch more in this letter, but right at the outset, he wants us to come back to these foundational, huge truths of what God has done for us. And they're amazing truths, that we are chosen by God, that we are redeemed by Jesus, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Those are really big deal kind of things. We don't have to, to worry about this. These are amazing truths. Now, we still have to ask the question, what's the big deal about this? I mean, why is Paul saying these things at the outset? We're going to get to the ultimate purpose of why he's writing this in a minute, but what Paul is doing in these opening chapters is teaching us our identity. He's teaching us the true story of who we are. I think back to that study that the impact of affirming ability versus affirming effort. And if simple words like, you must be smart and you must be a hard worker, if simple words like that can have that kind of an impact on a student's self-perception and growth, then we need to be sure that we're really clear to listen to the right voices when it comes to our own self-understanding. Some of us have heard some very harsh words throughout our life. Some of us have been cut deeply by those words. Some of us have been, set, have been told, you're never going to amount to anything. Some of us have been told, you're lazy. It's never going to work out for you. Some of us have, told, have been told, yeah, you're stupid. There's nothing you can do about that. Some of us have been told, you're ugly. No one's ever going to love you. And as much as we think those things don't matter, as much as we want to just cast them off and think, yep, I'm throwing it all away, they still can be a weight that we carry with us. And every time there's a setback or everything, every time there's, there's something that doesn't go our way, those, those voices come back to haunt us. And we think, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I really am a failure. Maybe I, I really am just not good enough. Maybe I really never will amount to anything. Paul tells us that there's a better story. He tells us the true story of, of who we are, and it doesn't have anything to do with your ability, and it doesn't have anything to do with your effort. It's based on how God sees you, 
how the one who created you looks at you and what he has done for you. See, the gospel of Jesus is good news because it's not just for people who are really smart and it's not just for people who really work hard. It's for everyone who is created by God and loved by him. It means it's a message for all of us. God has changed the story. He has given you a better story of who you are. You are loved by God. He made you. He loves you. He chose you. He redeemed you through his son, Jesus. He sealed you, guaranteed this good future for you by his spirit. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your story. Don't settle for any lesser story of who you are. It's so easy for us to believe other voices or to try to latch on to other things as a self-identifying factor, but don't allow those things to drive your life. Come back to who you truly are. You are loved by God, chosen by him. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is what's offered to you. There are all sorts of different identities that you could live under. And I don't know what the story that, that you are telling yourself is, that you are living under is today, but this is the story that's offered to you. It's a story that will stand no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are. It's a story that will last through everything that life pulls you away. God shows you. He loves you. He redeemed you. He sealed you. Now, over the next chapters, Paul is going to continue to hammer home who we are in Jesus. The, the whole first half of the book is just driving home the gospel, what that means for who we are. And then from there, the second half of the book takes over and, and it explains how do we actually live in light of that? How do we become a community that's shaped by the truths of the gospel? I love this book. I'm really excited to continue to dig into it deeper. But for now, we come to the ultimate purpose that, behind why Paul is laying all this out in the first place. The purpose at the outset is that we would praise God. I don't know if you noticed that, but every section that we looked at ends with a statement that we are created for the praise of God's glory. Look back at verses 5 and 6. You see it there. It talks about us being chosen, predestined for adoption to sonship. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is what we were made for. This is why we were chosen, to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his grace. Same thing in verses 11 and 12. And it talks about our redemption, the great plan of God. Verse 12, it's in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. This is what we were created for. This is why God has done amazing things for us. It's to the praise of his glory and grace. And again, in the last verse, verse 14, talking about the deposit of the Holy Spirit, it's to the praise of his glory. So for everything else that we look at in the passage, this, the number one response that we have to the gospel is to praise God. Now, if we really get this, we won't be able to stop talking about how great God is what amazing things he has done for us. I heard someone say once that the church would never have to teach people about evangelism or tell people how to talk to others about Jesus if we really understood the gospel. I mean, think about that. It's, it's true. We, we talk about things that we love. We talk about things that we know. I talk about Alaska. I talk about mountains. I, I talk about hockey. I talk about coffee. These are things that I love that are part of my life. So I talk about these things. You talk about beaches and, and sand and, and lakes and all this stuff. And, and some of us talk about our sports teams. And some of us talk about the latest health thing that we're doing. We talk about what we love. We talk about what's close to our heart. Listen, God has done something for us that is beyond our wildest dreams of what's possible. We are chosen in him. We have this new identity as God's sons and daughters, this unshakable identity that we belong because of Jesus and what God has done for us. 
That is the greatest thing in all the world. What should happen as we hear this story is that we just erupt in praise. It should be that we, we just can't help but talk about how great God is. When we gather on Sunday mornings, it's a fantastic opportunity to hear God's word and to praise him, to pray together, to praise him, to sing together, and to praise him. And then as we go out through the week, to be people everywhere we go who talk about how amazing God is for all that he has done for us. We should be shaped as a people who can't stop talking about how great God is and praising him for who he is and what he's done for us. And we get a little practice session right now. We're going to pray then we're going to sing together. It's an opportunity for us to actually put into practice what Paul is trying to get us to do, to actually praise God. We're going to sing of the, the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And I challenge you to really grasp what God is saying in the gospel. Grasp what this is saying about who you are. And then sing out from, with all the power of your lungs, even if you're a little bit off-key like me, sing out in great praise to God. He has done amazing things for us. Let me pray for us, then we'll sing together. God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us and you have shown us your love again and again and again. God, it's very easy for us to take on identities that are not the true story of who we are. We hear all these different voices telling us all sorts of different things about who we are and about what our value is, what our worth is. I pray that you would cut through those voices by the power of your spirit so that we would hear your voice. I pray that you'd make us people who worship you every, with every ounce of energy you give us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.